The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, December 16th, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Okay, the date checks out. Going through all our important presidential candidate announcements. Oh, here's one. Got an official statement. Here we go. Austin, Governor Rick Perry today issued the following statement regarding Hanukkah. It is fitting that the first night of Hanukkah falls this year on the anniversary of the Boston Tea Party, the same spirit of freedom that inspired the Maccabees to rise up against a foreign empire, motivated our founding fathers to rebel against the crown on that fateful night. They knew, as the Jewish people know, that few can overcome the many, that rat can defeat the might, that faith can defend and transcend persecution, no matter how vast the darkness, all it takes is one candle to spread the light. Our republic, like the light of the ancient menorah. And he goes on from there, appropriating one people's holiday and twisting around his own political agenda. It really is in keeping with the message of celebration, tolerance, and understanding. Rick Perry went on to say, Though you know, my Jewish friends, I have always been in favor of eliminating three of your holidays as wasteful. Simcha Torah, Shavuot, and what, what What was the other one? Purim? Uh, no, we're in Purim. What's the one with the outside lean-to? Sukkot? Yeah, I think that's it. Sukkot. But why stop at honoring the Jews and just the Jews by comparing them to the Tea Party? Here now, another hypothetical statement from Rick Perry. And let me say to my Hindu friends, have a joyous Diwali. As you know, Diwali is a time to celebrate the goddess Lakshmi and her marriage to Lord Vishnu. Both Vishnu and Lakshmi each have four arms. And you won't find more well-armed men and women than in the state of Texas. And to my Eastern Orthodox friends, happy Feast of the Epiphany, or as I understand you say it, the Theophany. From what I understand, you traditionally eat tarts, also known as torts. But of course, sometimes these torts crumble a bit in the baking process. You have to put them together by hand. Well, let me assure you, tort reform is also high on our agenda in Texas. Oh, oh, what's this, Kwanzaa? You know, I don't know much about Kwanzaa, but I do know a little something about the Mishuma Saba, which is your array of candles. And I'm sure that lighting them isn't easy, just not easy to execute But let me tell you, here in Texas, we do know about executions. In fact, we have executed over 500 people over the last 30 years, an average of 22 and a half people over the last 18 years. I know you're asking, how do you do half an execution? We're Texas. We're working on it. And a happy Eid al-Fatir to you, too. On today's show, we're still down with OPP, Other People's Podcasts. Get out with OPP. In the spiel, I talk to, yes, it's an interview spiel, an interspiel, but I talk to the first podcaster ever. We'll get his story, but first, one of my favorite podcasts done by one of my favorite people. So starting up an enterprise, any enterprise, includes growing pains. But when the enterprise is a new audio company, the growing pains are likely to be growing groans. So this is what it sounded like when we attempted to do an interview with startups Alex Bloomberg on, I think, the first day that he tried to get his new studio working. I don't sound like myself. I sound like some weird, fucked up version of myself. Yeah. Oh. 
Okay, well, we figured it all out. Well, we sort of figured it out. You'll hear that there's maybe a phone line in the background and his track. It'll be listenable, trust me. And anyway, this was weeks ago. Alex has got this whole thing figured out. Alex, by the way, is the former producer of This American Life, a co-founder of Planet Money, and now he's the guy behind Startup, one of the most listenable podcasts where no one is falsely accused of murder or might be falsely accused of murder. (laughs) Hello, Alex. Hello. I'm right. There's no one involved in your corporation who might be falsely accused of murder. Well, we're we're still in the middle of the story, so I can't say for sure. But so far, how has doing the podcast helped you psychologically in your journey? It's made me feel two ways. It's made me feel like I'm not alone um, because every time I air something. So so basically, there's this cycle. We'll we'll start planning to come out with our next episode, and then Matt, my co-founder, and I will have this conversation of, like, is this really what we're going to say? Are we really going to be bearing this much of all our missteps and our own sort of, like, self-doubt? Are we really going to be bearing all that right now? And then we say, yes, we are. And then there's, like, this gigantic pit in my stomach before it drops. Like, have I said too much this time? Or are people going to hate me? Or is this going to—am I going to embarrass myself? And then it goes out, and then the response has pretty much genuinely, generally been like, positive. And then, like, what happens instead is that, like, lots of people write in and be like, oh, my God, I had the same exact experience happen to me. It's just been helpful, <laughs> you know, to know that, like, these feelings that I'm having are, are not, you know, I'm not alone. And, like, you know, there's a sense that you're supposed to be, like, when you're starting a business, you have to be, you know, you're you're taking money from investors to, to build it. And then you, you, you know, you have this, like, it's a weird relationship, you know, which I'm only just beginning to understand the weird dynamics of, but like you've taken a lot of investor money. Many times often you've taken it from friends and family. Then you have all this pressure and you don't want to like let people know how much you're struggling. And so it becomes this very solitary thing starting a company. I did not understand that at all. I, if you would have asked me what's the hardest thing about starting a company before I started, I would have been like, oh, you know, trying to raise the money or trying to, I don't know, hire people or whatever. I don't know what I would have said. By far, the hardest thing is the emotional loneliness of it. How much of a motive for you is the profit motive? I don't think it's that big for me. I want to make a profit because... I want to be able to do cool things with that excess profit. I think one of the problems with public radio was there wasn't enough profit. Like profit is what you can take and reinvest and create new stuff that people want. And I and I feel like there is I think you and I both sort of recognize that there's like a yes. a growing demand for like quality content, digital audio content. If we're profitable, we we can help satisfy that demand and create new programming and, you know, do all that stuff. So, like, in that sense, yeah, of course I want to get rich. Everybody, you know, wants to get rich. Like, I'm not going to, like, I'd like to be able to afford to buy a house one day, you know, and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. This is the 2014 living in New York City version of rich, yes. (laughs) Exactly. I'd like to get rich enough to one day contemplate buying a... Maybe send my kids to college. But but it's definitely (laughs) not, like... There's ways that we could sort of be getting rich now that we're not, that, you know, that like, you know. See, I I agree. I don't think you are motivated by profit. I know you, and we've talked about this, and we haven't talked about this explicitly. But if I had to say, and maybe there are some capitalists who would say a version of this too, to the extent that you're motivated by profit, it's that 
what you said, that being at NPR or in public radio for 15 years, there were so many frustrations to it. And many of those frustrations had to do with inefficient undercapitalization of resources. So you're motivated by profit because you want the value of the thing you've created to be recognized, mainly so that you could create other things. Now, yeah, I'm sure a lot of capitalists would say that. Maybe Henry Ford would have said, you know, I just want to make cars so American could have cars and then I'd be able to make better cars. But I think that's what your profit motive is, that it represents the freedom to create. It's a way to maximize your creative freedom. I mean, I couldn't have put it better myself, honestly. Like, that was the thing. It's like sort of like, you know, creating these things that that seem to have value in the world and that value isn't reflected financially in a way that it could be. And, and like, I think people hear you say that, like some, you know, sort of in the public radio world, people might hear you say that and think like, you know, monetizing people is sort of like a path down this, you know, sort of like it's a dirty word and all that sort of stuff. And and I'm not even talking about in ways that anybody would even notice. Like I'm talking about in ways that just sort of like there's you could provide the exact same show in exactly the same way and just be bringing in more money from it just be, by being more efficient about it and, you know, and sort of setting systems up differently and, and sort of like thinking a little bit more creatively about what you're going to be doing, you know? I kind of think, I love public radio. Compare public radio to private radio, it's a lot better. But, you know, compare it to podcasts. There's a good case for podcasts, even though some of the best podcasts are public radio. I think maybe when it's founded, you know, during the LBJ administration, like commerce was necessarily a bad thing. But now when you look at what commerce can be awful, like there are aspects of Facebook that, show you that commerce still steals your information. But you know what? There's aspects of Facebook as fueled by commerce that show you how amazing it can be. So I still think, as I listen to your show, like when you do your ads and you have a music bed under the ad and you explicitly said in the first few episodes, all right, anytime you hear this music, it's an ad. I still think that's a vestige of looking at things in the old public radio way. When in fact, when in fact... Your entire show maybe needs to have that music bed under it because you just raised like a million and a half dollars. Isn't your show just an ad? <laughs> an ad for the company? Yeah. I guess so, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> viewed a certain way. The worst case scenario in terms of sort of like using ads to support journalism is the Scientology thing on the Atlantic, right? Where like it looks like Alex Bloomberg believes this when in fact somebody paid Alex Bloomberg to say it. And so I just wanted to be really clear about that. Like I don't think... Obviously, we need advertisers, and obviously, advertisers are going to, you know, pay for this content. And and but I just wanted to be very, very clear about it. Like there is a point where they're going to pay me, and I will be, it will never be a question. You will always know when the paid parts are and when the non-paid parts are. I can't argue with that. You've gotten compliments for that. I got to say, when you hear me, when a just listener starts hearing me talking about stamps or mattresses or razors and giving a code, maybe they could figure out I was paid for that. But if it's like, if it's you just being like, uh, you know, talking, like you're talking to me right now and you're just sort of like, yeah, I mean, like, whatever, if you're working it in, like, oh yeah, I, I don't know, Harry's shave. I've never, my face feels so smooth now, like out of nowhere, you know, or whatever. I don't know how it would work, but like, you know, like that's, that's all like, and maybe that's even fine too. I just don't know. But I just, I want to like, to me, that's the main thing that I don't want to cross. Like I want it to be very, very clear. 
I don't want to be too careful about that. You know what, Alex? That might not be the best point, but the country's best yogurt is now serving Angry Birds piggy flavor at the Ridgewood, New Jersey Turnpike Vince Lombardi service station. It's the country's best yogurt. Check it out. All right, back to our interview. Um, No, but you wouldn't say back to our interview. Oh, and hold on. Let me scoop out some yogurt here. All right. uh, I wanted to ask you about the name Gimlet because this was an entire episode. I agree. You talked, I think you talked to our old friends from Planet Money, Jacob Bowie, and was uh, Kestenbaum in there? Kestenbaum was in there, yes. Yeah, and I think they all articulated what I was thinking, that I think a great name could help, like that Yo, which we subscribe to, if the name was is something like Internet Notification Inc., that would be a crappy name. Yo's a good name. And I think a name could be terrible, like the AIDS diet drug. But in general, names are names. However, because you did a whole podcast about your name, Gimlet, do you think you drew more attention to your name than you would have, and what's been the fallout? If that's true, what's been the fallout from it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where if we just, like, that was, in a, that was a perfect example of sort of, like, where I was like, oh, crap, now everybody's here behind the curtain with us, and they're going to have seen everything, and now everybody's going to have an opinion, whereas if you could just roll out the name and just be like, this is our name, and, like, you know, that's what it is, you know? Um, it's sort of like the naming process is so fraught anyway, and like everybody, it's such a gut thing, and everybody has their own gut reactions and things that I loved, people hated, and things that people, other people loved, I hated. But I think the overall point is is true that you're eventually it's a name is a vessel, and yeah. you fill it with meaning. That's right. Like let's look at Chips Ahoy cookies, the Today Show, and Procter and Gamble. What the hell is that, Procter and Gamble? Doesn't sound good. Or the Rolling Stones. Like I feel like you know. When you say the Rolling Stones, you do not picture a stone that is rolling at all. Although I think these days there are some band names that are so bad that are holding them back, like the band The War on Drugs. I'll throw that one out there. (laughs) That's a terrible name for it. You cannot Google that. So when uh, Gimlet becomes what you envision it and when there are a bunch of different podcasts, what becomes of Startup? Does it transition to... It's got to, at some point, stop being the story of your company, and your company has to just be the story of your company. Uh, Episode 235 of Startup, who will roll (laughs) whose eyes at the editorial meeting? (laughs) So the plan right now is we're going to try something. We're going to wind this season down, like maybe, I don't know exactly how many more episodes we have. Let's say we have five more episodes or something like that of the current season. And then the plan is to find other companies to sort of profile and, and essentially embed with, you know, sort of just basically do sort of a documentary style season again of, of a different company. I'm pretty excited about it. I think there's like a way to make that happen in, a, in, a, in an intriguing way to make it sort of serial in nature, serial, small C, small S serial, not, not, not big S serial, uh, in nature and, and like just sort of do the seasons basically of, of startup. That's our plan. Alex Bloomberg is the man behind Startup and is the founder of Gimlet Media. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Mike. It was really fun. And now the spiel, the podfather. So what makes what you're about to listen to a spiel rather than a regular old interview? Well, Christopher Lydon makes it that. Christopher Lydon is the host of the public radio show and podcast, Open Source. Before that, he hosted WBUR's The Connection. Before that, he wrote for the New York Times. Somewhere in there, he ran for mayor of Boston. He didn't win, but he did beat the former police commissioner. Oh, yeah, and he recorded the first podcast. So this week, this is podcast week here. We're talking all about podcasts. Slate's special podcast issue, pegged to the invention, the coinage of the term podcast in 2004 has come out. But the year prior to that, 
summer of 2003, Christopher Lydon recorded what was then hailed as a weblog for the ears. Hello, Christopher Lydon. Greetings, Mike. Can you tell me, can you take me back and tell me what the circumstances were of that weblog for the ears? I, I was a refugee from radio at the moment. Dave Weiner joined me as a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet at, at the Harvard Law School. I wrote to him. I said, yesterday I didn't, couldn't spell blog. Tomorrow I want to be one. He said, you know radio. I know syndication. What the world needs is a syndicated MP3 file. I didn't know what an MP3 file was, but we worked at it for a few months. And then came to June 03, and he said, I think we've got it. And I said, now what? He said, well, that's obvious. You're going to interview me, and we're going to send it out to the world. And we did. I'm Christopher Lydon. With a spoken word on my patron saint of bloggers, Ralph Waldo Emerson was the ringleader of the first American Renaissance in the 1850s. He was the intimate it friend It is crazy-making, exhilarating to, to feel this thing uh, getting big-time traction. The numbers, I mean, it may even become commercially viable before we, before we know it, but interesting. So there we are. That's my short form. 200th birthday this summer, and I say he would be celebrating these blog pages and these bloggers sprouting up everywhere as a sort of fulfillment of his vision of an expressive democracy of outspoken individuals sharing a universal treasury of information in a global mind. The only thing that I would worry about is if Emerson really is the godfather of blogs. No, the god of blogging, I say. Go ahead. Yes, if he's the god of blogging. You know, if it's really true that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, that would eliminate half the blogs out there. That's the only problem. That's true. You're good to notice, notice that. But he also said, invent a better mousetrap and the world will beat a path to your door. That's, that's what's happening. He also said, you know, when you look at a society, you look at anything, he dreaded the masses. He said, it's the minority, the minority. We, we have to hope in, in the minority in any situation. And we hope for the minority in, in podcasting, too. So this is funny because it's not as if you backed into this. The reason that you were out there and the reason that Dave Weiner worked with you to do this was the connection was people, if they had not heard of the show, was a wildly successful show on WBUR. And Boston's a specific kind of town, but I mean, you were the top rated show. And, you know, friends of mine who worked on the show would say if they dropped into the conversation, they worked on the connection. You know, that was basically like working on Saturday Night Live in 1978. But you leave WBUR because of this precise issue, who the internet and who owns the rights to your program. And so it must have been very gratifying to you, or it must be over these last 10 years, to see your exact issue pay off in the form of, I don't know, vindication. It's almost as if everything you were arguing back then has come to pass. Well, that's what we're doing it. And the SNL comparison is flattering, but maybe frivolous. But no, it, Mike, I've been looking over the history of what we were thinking and what we were doing, and I, I'm kind of amazed. We were onto a, a significant idea. The fundamental one was that traditional media was stuck. I mean, remember, this is the media that you can't name a newspaper that opposed the war in Iraq. You can't name a newspaper that asterisked the election of George W. Bush the way they asterisked Roger Maris back in the Home Run Derby days. I mean, the media went limp. The The media as the elders of the society, people with memory, people with prudence, with caution, with, with understanding, had disappeared. What did you miss during the time that you weren't on the radio? I... I <laughs> 
look, it's an addictive medium. We get to love and adore the sound of our own voice. I miss that. But I, I miss something, I still miss it, something sort of consequential in the public conversation. Bill McKibben wrote in the New York Review several, four, I'd say four or five years ago, that the best public radio was now being done online, in, on the internet, in the podcasts. And I think I still think what, what he said, that podcasting is the future of a grown-up public broadcasting system, that the internet is the new public, and people can speak for themselves. I mean, that was Emerson's great insight. Uh, and it was the great wisdom that I learned after conventional journalism doing talk radio. People are amazingly smart. They're passionate. They're connected. The human voice is still, you know, Studs Terkel called it that fabulous instrument, vox humana. There's nothing better for registering real life, real opinion, real thinking, real passion. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, we're, we're still groping toward a, a, a better future. What? Let's pay it forward. Do you have a couple podcasts you like, love, would recommend to our listeners? Uh, I don't know. I'd have to credit Serial. I mean, I love Ira in any form. Love Ben Walker's Theory of Everything and, and, and all the stuff he does. He did a marvelous show on 1984, why that's still the, the revealing year. There's so much stuff out there. There's a guy named... Wayne and Wax in, in Massachusetts, who does marvelous musical podcasts. I think of my own stuff. I think I love the music stuff most of all. But there's everything that can be done with it. And I, I basically, I like it all. Christopher Lydon is host of the public radio show Open Source. You can find it at radioopensource.org. If you want to call him the podfather, it wouldn't be inaccurate. Thank you so much, Christopher. Mike, thank you. Keep doing it. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi enjoys catching young Atlantic haddock with a single line. This classic fish-out-of-water tale is also known as scrodcasting. Intern Claire Tennisketter is always going on and on and on about this show she listens to about squat thrusts, an example of quadcasting. Managing producer of Slate Podcast Joel Meyer fought Norman Lear in his desire to hire B. Arthur for a titular role, but Joel lost that round of modcasting. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast, just lost his shirt when he tried to hire a former Different Stroke star to play the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. That bit of Sweeney Todd casting was a Bridges too far. See, Todd Bridges, there's two Todds. It works on two levels, or some could argue, none. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher. Get our daily email at slate.com slash just email. We're on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Many other Rick Perry Hanukkah-related items are up there right now. And do listen to Slate's newest audio offering. It's a discussion show featuring a squid, an octopus, and a cuttlefish from across the political spectrum. 24 arms, hundreds of opinions, and delicious with marinara sauce. Cephalopod casting coming to a Zoom near you. Thanks for listening. I'm Dana Stevens. This week on the Culture Gab Fest, we'll talk about Top 5, Chris Rock's new semi-autobiographical comedy about being a successful comedian wondering if he's still funny. You can look for us in the Slate store on iTunes or at slate.com slash podcasts.